Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... Hello and welcome to episode 203. This is the first in what I hope will be a series of interviews with Art Prize artists. Art Prize 2017 kicks off Wednesday here in Grand Rapids, and that is going to be the 20th of September. So time is flying. It's Art Prize season again, and this competition is one of the biggest art competitions in the world where large sums of money are at stake. There's a public vote and a curated vote. So you have a combination of professional art critics and experts in the area of art picking their favorites. And then you have the public picking its favorite. And it's pretty interesting every year. This year, I stopped by preview week. I was able to get a little peek at some of the artwork that will be attracting thousands and thousands of people in the next few weeks here in Grand Rapids. I went to the Grand Rapids Art Museum and saw the work of Gina E. Klein. She's a 42-year-old artist out of Boone, North Carolina, and she was one of five artists invited to compete in Pitch Night in Durham, where artists make their pitch and talk about what their art installation is all about, and a panel of judges decides which of the five is going to be awarded a $5,000 grant. And then also with that prize comes an exhibition space inside one of Art Prize's most sought-after venues, the Grand Rapids Art Museum. Well, Gina went to that event, and she didn't win. However, two weeks later, the Grand Rapids Art Museum contacted her, and the folks there were talking to her about bringing a different art exhibit, not the one she pitched, a different one to West Michigan. So she agreed and was able to kind of shuffle around her exhibition schedule for some of you know her traveling work. It all worked out and her collection of art quilts are now installed in the Grand Rapids Art Museum. And that's a exhibit called Past Perfect. It depicts imagery from houses that are abandoned that she has gone to and explored and photographed. She's going to talk more about her entry as the interview unfolds here. I also want to just note that Gina's originally from Ypsilanti, so she's a Michigander at heart here. She now resides in North Carolina, where she's an associate professor of fibers at Appalachian State University, which sounds like a dream job to me. (laughs) Um, That must be awesome. We're going to talk about her creative roots, her art prize entry, and then we're also going to discuss the text-based work that she started after the inauguration of Donald Trump. That's the collection in which she is exploring the false sense of participation, ineffective activism, and the echo chamber of social media. It's a really interesting project, and I'm going to post photos of her art prize entry and then also this project on craftsanity.com with links to her website so you can check everything out. And definitely, if you're in town, go see her work at uh, the Grand Rapids Art Museum. So we're going to talk about Gina's work. We're also going to talk a little bit about where fiber art fits into the grand landscape of art. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I always really appreciate that. And I also want to thank my Patreon sponsors and those folks who help keep this show going. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, so grab a project and settle in for a conversation with Gina. Gina, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I went and saw the exhibits that were, um, the entries that were up at the Grand Rapids Art Museum this past week. I went in with my little media badge so I could get in early and check it out. And uh, I'm a fiber artist myself, and I really am drawn to, anytime I see traditional craft techniques used in a way that, um, to create art, I, I absolutely love it, and I gravitate to that kind of work. So, of course, when I see 
your five quilts there, I was like, oh, here we go. It's like a magnet pulling me toward it. <laughs> so um, I really, and I um, spent some time on your website as well. So I'd like to not only talk about the work that you have in Art Prize, but your overall, mm-hmm. like the work, all of your work. And um, I, and I and just kind of give people a chance to hear your story and uh, how you, you know, got to this point in your career and, you know, some of the things that, the issues that you're tackling in your work and so forth. So I, I'd love it if we could kind of start out with um, you kind of introducing yourself. I know that you teach art and you're actually from mm-hmm. Michigan. I, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, yeah. So where, tell <laughs> I, us where you're I, from. I am, I am originally from Michigan, I'm born in Ypsilanti and lived in Ann Arbor until I was 11. Then my family moved to Hendersonville, North Carolina, where I stayed until I went to college. I did my undergraduate degree at North Carolina State University, initially intending to be an architect, but I quickly realized that architects don't actually touch with their hands the things that they make. Mm, Yeah, that is a downside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So kind of on a whim, I took a weaving class and that just, it clicked for me. It was this beautiful fusion of art and math, which I also love. After I finished my undergraduate degree, I stayed in Raleigh for three years and then went back to grad school at Arizona State University for my MFA and went straight from Arizona State to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina to start teaching. And I have been here ever since. Oh, good for you. So that how long has it been now that you've been teaching there? I, I'm starting my 14th year of teaching. At That's Appalachian awesome. State. That's really awesome. And it's so hard to get I mean, a lot of artists don't have that where they go right from their MFA to a teaching position. So congrats. That's awesome. Well, my my initial teaching position at Appalachian was actually an adjunct position. But as luck would have it, the fibers professor went on leave a year after I was there. So I had a temporary one-year position. And then she did not return. So I had another one-year temporary position. So then when they did the national search for the full-time tenure track, position, I'd had enough experience to actually be a candidate for it and was hired into it. What was it about that art class that kind of drew you in? Well, I think in reality, I had been working with fibers my entire life, but I didn't know it was a thing until that point. There was certainly <laughs> right. no fiber. Seriously, right, that you like, could have a job. Yeah, no, I didn't realize well. that either. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had always done done art from, from birth. It's all I ever really wanted to do. And felt like I needed to have a more specific job title than artist. So architecture seemed really logical because I also, I loved math. And so weaving it, it, it was such a mathematical process, but also the, the making and the art and getting to control every aspect of it was just, it was magical to me. Um, but by the time I ended up going back to grad school, I'd shifted completely away from the loom, but it's still my, my early roots and really one of my favorite classes to teach because nobody knows how to do it at all. So the learning curve is so steep with students. They come in knowing nothing. And within weeks, they're making fabric from scratch, which is really kind of amazing. It is really fantastic. Now, what kind of looms do you have in your classroom? We have a lot of kind of sad, decrepit looms that have been <laughs> yeah. around forever. Yeah. That's... We have, we're very limited on space. So I'm, I'm slowly trying to replace some of the clunky, big, older looms that have some challenges with right. the shot baby wolf ones okay. that are, yeah. they're just so user-friendly. And we do have one ABL CompuDobby. When you said that you're, you're always making art, like what kinds of things did you do as a kid? Well, I did a ton of drawing, I think, as any kid does, but I would also scavenge stuff. Like I pretty much was a child hoarder. I would not let my parents (laughs) throw things out. So there's any little scrap of fabric or yarn or anything. I would, I would make it into something. I would glue the fabric down and make pictures that way. Or I would sew little stuffed animals or um, I did a lot of crocheting as a kid too. I was just, that was what I did. That was all I wanted to do. And and then when you made that, when you switched from architecture to, to art, how did the people in your mm-hmm. life react to that? Did you get support? Uh, they were not surprised. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I did. Both of my parents have undergraduate music degrees. Okay. So they, so they know they the art bug. They know. It. Yeah, they understand. Right. And um, I mean, neither one of them went on to work professionally in music, but they still get that 
it's it's reasonable to have a creative degree and that that what happens next will happen. And, you know, I always had waitressing to fall back on, which I did a lot of as a student and between degrees and such. And, you know, when I first switched over into fibers from architecture, in my mind, it was, oh, well, maybe I'll go into fashion design because that still felt like something really concrete as far as a job. And it, it took me a while to accept, by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I accepted that, no, my my path in life is not to be a designer. It is it is to be an artist and to make things. It's kind of coming back full circle in a way. You're coming back to Michigan. I'm assuming that you're going to be in town for part of Art Price. Are you going to be making the trip? I Yes, I am. I'm actually going to come up next weekend. Um, my husband and I are going to go up together for our first night away without children, which is pretty exciting. Congratulations. So we're going to go up for two. Thanks. We'll go up just for two nights to kind of experience the, the craziness of it firsthand. I just, I, I want to see, and there are other North Carolina artists who are showing work. So I want to support my fellow artists as well. Oh, awesome. And so um, how many children do you have? I have two, a five-year-old and almost three-year-old. Okay. Yeah. So those are some fun ages and yes, you don't get a absolutely. lot of breaks when they're that age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So, so you've never been to Art Prize before at all. Then. No, I have not. No. Okay. Mm-mm. So what was it that attracted you to this competition? Actually, my the work that I'm showing is not the work I intended to show at Art Prize. Interesting. I I competed in the pitch night in Durham, which is where five artists are selected mm-hmm. to give a five minute pitch of how they would use five thousand dollars to do a project at Art Prize. And the the project I proposed is a new project I've been working on just this year, um, kind of in response to the current political situation, and it's very time sensitive. And so I saw Art Prize as this opportunity to show this new work that's very specific to this moment in time before it basically expires. But I did not get, I did not win the Pitch Night grant, which is fine. Another North Carolina artist won it, and I'm excited for him and can't wait to see his installation. But about two weeks after pitch night, then the curators of the Grand Rapids Art Museum approached me and said, well, would you be interested in showing your quilts instead? And I said, sure. So uh, it all actually worked out great because then I had another opportunity to show the work I had wanted to show in Grand Rapids in Nashville. And everything has kind of landed where it was supposed to land. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to have the five quilts there, even though it those pieces were not my original goal for art prize. Okay. And so the, and then were the quilts already, they were already done then. So they came to you and they four, saw four your. Four of the five, right. Four of the five were finished. And okay. then I had another one underway. And so it was, there was a little bit of back and forth about which specific quilts would be in the show because I had another prior commitment to an exhibition out in New Mexico. And so it was some shuffling of exactly which quilts would go where. And then I had this other one in progress that, I thought would pair really well with one of the existing ones and um, and the curators at Graham agreed. So when I got that fifth one finished, it got added to the group and they all went up there. Okay, excellent. Well, let's talk for the people who have not had a chance to go see your work yet. Um, let's talk a little bit about mm-hmm. if you can describe the project, these five quilts, um, you're calling your entry mm-hmm. pass perfect. And if you can talk a little bit about, um, you're using a combination of mediums and, and skills, and it's really interesting. So if you can describe what your project's all about, your entry's all about, and some of the yeah. um, your approach to it. So I go to abandoned houses. I've been interested in abandoned houses for as long as I can remember, which I know is a very trendy kind of interest. <laughs> um, but it is. But there's something about that that narrative that has been lost that I find really intriguing that that something happened in that space and that that actual humans lived there and that those actual humans had stories that that might relate to my own story and intersect with my story so I go and explore abandoned houses and take photographs inside them and then in my studio I play around in photoshop and put some of the photographs together to get a, a really large digital image and then I merge it with a traditional pieced quilting pattern. So I try and play with how the image with this pieced pattern would, would look together. And that's all done on um, the computer. My, that's all done on the computer. Mm-hmm. 
Then my next step is I paw through my piles of fabric, which all of the fabric I use comes from my late grandmother's church quilting group. So it's all the fabric that has its own kind of forgotten history and has passed through a lot of hands before it comes to me. I like it both conceptually and aesthetically and every, it just makes sense with the work. So I, I figure out what fabric I'm going to use for the piece. And then I strategically coat the fabric with a combination of different media. So I use um, gesso, which is completely opaque and completely covers the fabric. I use some gel medium, which is transparent. And I use golden digital ground, which is a media that's intended to make things that you're not supposed to print on, print onable. So I, I cover some of the fabric completely um, to obliterate the fabric. Some I reveal a little bit of the fabric. And then I send all of the fabric through my desktop Epson printer. So I take that image that I have in Photoshop and break it down into anywhere from 200 to 800 individual pieces and print all those segments onto the fabric that I have coded. Um, And I keep up with all of it with an alphanumeric code to remember which piece goes where. And then I just sew it all back together again. And then I paint on top of it with acrylic paint, kind of either reimagining what the space could have been like before it became abandoned. Um, Or in my more recent work, I've started to get a little bit more metaphorical and fantastical as far as the things that I insert into the space. And then I layer it with batting and backing and quilt it and finish it as a traditional quilt. Is it hard to sew through that? when you have the layers and the gesso and the, the coating and <laughs> it, is, it is, um, my, I, I use a regular like, Janome sewing machine to sew all the pieces together. Um, when I do quilt the layers for almost all of my pieces, I hand quilt them and they are not heavily quilted. It's kind of random stitches to hold the layers together because they're not intended to ever be functional quilts. So they don't need to have the, level of quilting that would be necessary to hold together a functional quilt. The five quilts that you have on display are the images that are depicted, are they related? Like, is there, um, I know you have one that looks like a kitchen sink Mm -hmm. and then there's a a couple looks like at least two that have front porches. And um, then there's one that's a family photo. That's it's primarily the quilt Mm -hmm. as in a more traditional sense. And only part of it is kind of a a photo. um, are these related in any way? Or are these completely different pieces? Um, I'm trying to remember if any of them came from the same house. I think they are all from different houses. They are they are not from the same house at all. Um, so I mean, they're related in the the process and the abandoned house component and and all of that. But they're they're from different houses. I'm curious about, I guess, just backing up to you going out and looking at abandoned properties. Have mm-hmm. you ever been caught or like <laughs> busted doing this? I mean, because um, you're a mom yeah. now, you know, <laughs> I'm just curious. Right. You know, I mean, but I like abandoned stuff, too. And in the back of my mind, anytime and I love taking pictures of things like very odd things, I'll go right. take a picture of a rusted faucet and stuff like that, that I'm just totally intrigued by. And other people are like, what are you doing? Um, but I, in the back of my mind, I'm always like, oh, no, is someone going to ask me to leave? Like, <laughs> you know, so. Well, I've always thought that artists should have like a, an, it's okay, I'm an artist card. Right. You know, that anytime <laughs> right. we're doing something weird, that's right. the excuse. That would make um, things easier. I, I So I did get busted once. Um, I, I always go out with one of my colleagues who also loves going to abandoned houses. And he and I went to this abandoned it was really a whole abandoned village about an hour from where we live. It's a abandoned mill town. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but it was where the portions of the hunger games was filmed. Oh, so, right. So it becomes so more of an attraction to other people who aren't artists. <laughs> and apparently there had, were a lot of issues with people trespassing. So there were a lot of no trespassing signs, but you know, we of course trespassed the heck out of it anyways. Right. And went into, went into all the houses and um, we were almost done when this car pulls up like a very fancy SUV and a very well-dressed older couple inside that rolled down the window. And um, 
you know, said, did you see all the no trusting trespassing signs? And is there any reason I shouldn't call the cops essentially? And, and I, I basically sweet talked him and convinced him of the truth, which is that we were artists who were really interested in it and interested in history. And so he told us the whole history of the place and said, we were welcome to stay and keep taking pictures as long as we stayed on the, the sidewalks and didn't go into any of the buildings. But of course we'd already been in all the buildings anyway, so it didn't matter. Oh. Um, so that, <laughs> that is, that is the closest I've gotten to, you know, getting into any actual trouble. Yeah. And it sounds like it's good that you go with with a friend, so you're not by yourself. Oh yeah, I never kind of, go yeah, alone. Because you want to no. be, yeah. Anyone listening to this, if you're going into something abandoned, please be careful. Right. Don't and go I, alone, I wear you know. I wear hiking boots. I um, we I, I do not actually enjoy going into abandoned houses. I I go because I feel really compelled to do it for my work. But I try and get in and out as quickly as possible. I I don't linger. I don't. Um, I do not spend any more time than is absolutely necessary to get the images that I need. And are you just going for the photo, like taking photos, or are you looking for like remnants of the life that was there, like the people that live there and what they were about? You know, and because sometimes people leave a house if they're evicted or they have to move quickly or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. Sometimes people leave a lot of stuff. Like you can oh, kind yeah. of like you walk in and it seems all the more sad that there's no one yes, there because I've it's been, like they didn't mm-hmm. move. They didn't like pack up and move. Like we pack up and move if we're going to one place from one place to another. Uh, so what are some interesting things you've seen and how do you feel when you're in that space? And it looks like there's remnants and artifacts from somebody else's life right there in front of you. Uh, it's, it can be really disturbing. Um, the, the most upsetting one I've been in to recently, the house had tons of evidence of weaponry. So there was like a a gun case, a target, shell casings, empty ammo boxes, gun and ammo magazines, tons. And then also a lot of evidence of children, um, like children's games and toys and stuffed animals and clothes and shoes. And I just found that combination to be really chilling. Um, yeah. I, I didn't end up making a, a piece based on that home. So that was, that was one that it, it did not feel good. It was not a good sense of abandonment there. Um, you know, generally the more stuff that is left in a house, the more indications, the, the more it indicates that what caused the abandonment was not a positive thing. Right. Because if you have time to move stuff, you move stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, if we can talk about some of the pieces in particular that are in Art Prize, mm-hmm. I just have your artist page up, and there's the one house, and I think this was the first one I saw when I walked into the space, if I remember correctly. It's, it says happy birthday on the porch, like mm-hmm. across the, mm-hmm. like and a little like banner uh, across the front porch. Um, can you tell me about that house? Well, with that one and with many of the pieces that I made about that time, I was trying to imagine a kind of a singular moment or a singular day of celebration or happiness in the house's past that, you know, in spite of this state of decay and depression and sadness that is now in that, that there would have been times in the past when there was celebration and joy and happiness and people leading actual lives and, and celebrating each other and, you know, laughing and smiling. And so, so you just kind of, so what you do is kind of imagine a story about these places because the people aren't there, you can't talk to them. So you're just kind of trying to ima- kind of reimagine the history. And, um, and so this, right. so in this case, you added some balloons and um, that banner and that's something that obviously wasn't in the original photo. Right. So right. Um, how do you decide what kind of quilting technique, like this is a, it looks like just regular blocks just patchwork, just regular mm, squares. You kind of, yeah. what kind of piecing yeah. technique? Yeah, when you're deciding like how to, like what piecing technique to use with a particular uh, photograph that you're going to superimpose and mm-hmm. paint, how do you come to those decisions? Um, well, I, I come up with the, the image first. So after having visited the house, I have the digital image. And then I will just kind of thumb through traditional piecing patterns. So I'll a lot of times go on, um, line and just pull up traditional piecing patterns and I'll sketch on graph paper, some different possibilities. And honestly, it's a very aesthetic kind of formal decision of what 
what would make sense with this, what would visually work with this. Some of them do have more significance, like the the piece that is just the photographs in the corner with the log cabin mm-hmm. piece quilt. Um, that one, those pictures were abandoned in a house that was abandoned because the house had caught on fire, clearly. Oh. And Jeez. And so those pictures were kind of in a pile of burned rubble. And so using a log cabin, you know, that center red square is intended to represent a fireplace. So I was making a connection there mm-hmm. with um, the fireplace. But in general, it's it is a purely aesthetic choice and it's to to challenge me. So that happy birthday piece, that's a couple of years old. It was all squares. As I've progressed more and more, the piecing has become much more complex with more triangles and different kinds of constructions because it's it's that love of math coming back out in me that I, I kind of love the challenge of figuring out how all these parts will come together. And the pieces that you're printing on, how big are they? Is it an eight and a half by 11 or is it different si- a different size uh, than smaller. that? Okay, <laughs> so how's... Yeah, they're smaller. They're, um, it, it, depending on the piece, so they're they're scaled to the size of the pieces within the quilt. Okay. So, you know, up to maybe six or seven inches wide um, and maybe eight inches long. It just, it varies a lot depending on, like if it's a quilt that's composed of three inch triangles, then I might print a piece with four triangles on one piece and it'll be like four inches wide by 12 inches long. And then I cut it all back apart. Okay. So you really are doing this grid. You have that master plan before oh, yeah. you start printing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, there's yeah, no way it would yeah, go back together. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of right. have to force yeah, yourself. Be, that would be madness. Yeah. Well, and I can tell that as as you said, with that, if that was your first one, things have gotten uh, a lot more complex. Now, did you consider yourself a quilter before you started this project? Had you made quilts before? Yeah. I, I had been making quilts for quite a while. And, and that happy birthday one isn't the first piece in this project. It's, I think, just the oldest one. In that collection. That, okay. Right. So I started um, this particular project in 2011, but I had been making quilts since, I don't know, probably 2003 or so was, or actually even longer than that. I'm trying to remember when did I start making quilts. Um, was it during college or after, after college? Was it was it after? after, it was after college. It was between undergrad and grad. So okay. probably like 99 or 2000 was okay. when I made my first quilt. And initially I was making whole cloth quilts where I was painting imagery with dyes and then layering it with the batting and backing and quilting, and then, um, kind of slowly transitioned into some pieced components. But I, I did a lot of just very image based whole cloth or minimal piecing for a long time before moving into introducing more and more of that traditional pieced component. Okay. And then it sounds like um, having your grandmother's fabric stash is, mm-hmm. is played a mm-hmm. huge role. And do you ever buy anything or do you just work Mm-mm. with what you have? You just work with I, what you I have? Only, yeah, I only use the fabric. It, it's not just my, my grandma. It's my late grandmother's church quilting group. Oh, it's so a whole group. Oh, team wow. of women. Okay. Yeah. So they, and they send me not just the scraps from their quilting, but if any of them clean out their fabric stash or anyone donates stuff that they can't use for their quilting stuff. So I get like loads of fabric from them. It's pretty amazing. Oh, wow. So you're still, so that's so still coming I, in. So oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. So you have, and is that, yeah. and that is challenging when other people are picking your fabric, essentially. That's mm-hmm. different. You well, can't... in some ways it makes it easier because then anytime I go to an actual fabric store, if say, I don't know, if I, if I have a purpose for using fresh, new, clean, manufactured fabric, right. I just get overwhelmed. When you talk to other people who make quilts, because you're, it's an interesting mm-hmm. position. And I interview a lot of artists who are in this position where they're almost straddling two worlds where they do fine art, um, but they're also, they also can hold their own, you know, if they were to, you could do a pr- presentation at a quilt guild and have the quilters completely be able, like you'd be able to you speak the language, you know, you um, are using the same techniques um, and then uh, piling on to those techniques, fine art techniques with the painting and the um, some of the other, um, you know, kind of taking this beyond um, just sewing fabric together. And a lot of a lot of quilts are going into that realm where they're photorealistic. They're, you know, right. people are, I mean, we had a quilter won art prize in 2013, and then she came back in 2015 and won again. Uh, and it, it was a um, partnership with her husband, a collaboration with her husband. He's a photographer. 
So it kind of transitioned mm-hmm. from a photo into a quilted piece. And, um, mm-hmm. and that was very controversial. So um, there, hmm. well, no, the controversy comes in when people uh, sometimes have a hard, hard time accepting. And I definitely don't have to tell you this as, you know, you're a fiber artist. So you probably encountered this, you know, just that whole uh-huh. dynamic over when people say they're like, oh, it's a quilt. What is it doing in an art museum? And that's starting to fall away. It's, but it's falling away a little slower than I'd like it to. Um, because I, I just, I go out of my mind. I'm like, I don't think people realize like how much is involved. Like you're using, you have to use complicated like math and like grid stuff out and you're painting, you're, you're cutting, you know, you're using fabric, you're using, I mean, you're, there's so much going on. It's not just like, you're just sitting there mindlessly sewing and quilters aren't mindlessly sewing either, you know, a traditional quilter. Right. So what is your, I mean, what is your take on this and what has been your experience as a fine artist uh, have you encountered a lot of pushback um, or are you having an easy time getting into shows now? So, well, that's, it's a kind of complex question because um, I am stra- straddling multiple lines and I find that I speak about my work differently depending on the audience. You know, if I'm, if I'm in a, um, a, a traditional quilt world or a craft centric world, then I focus much more on the technique of it and all of the parts of the process that is involved in it and the step-by-step um, aspects of what I did to make the work look the way it is. If I'm trying to couch my work in a more fine art kind of venue, then I speak more to the conceptual content. And, and I do feel like my work is conceptually rooted. I just work in traditional craft processes Kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of this funny, this funny hybrid amongst quilting and painting and photography and printing. Um, I, I do exhibit my work widely. I have probably shown more in venues or in shows that are craft specific or quilt specific, but not by a large margin. Um, I, for the last few years have really focused on showing my work just in solo shows or small group curated shows where that it just doesn't become much of an issue at all. Like that, that, um, you know, is it craft? Is it quilt? Is it art? Like, how do you define it? It doesn't really matter. Right. So by, by generally kind of ditching the whole juried art world, that has solved that problem for me to an extent. Um, but it, it is funny to me sometimes to see how others choose to categorize my work. Like several years ago, I had my work included in a show, a curator invited me to have my work as part of a, um, a realism show and specifically large scale realism. So it was in there with all these realist painters with my work, which I thought was fantastic that they could see how, how it doesn't have to be a painting to fit into that mm-hmm. um into that world and how did what kind of response did you get from the people that attend like i don't know if you got feedback from people that attended the show that was not a show that i actually got to physically go to i mean it's sad how much my work gets to travel so much more than i do yeah i think a lot of artists <laughs> so are, are, have that same experience right yeah it's like i ship it off and tell it to have a nice trip and then i'll see it when it gets back generally my work has been well received but maybe that's just because People who, who don't receive it well don't tell me. So um, I, I don't know. I, I have not gotten a lot of super critical negative feedback, but that doesn't mean that that isn't out there. What I guess if you were if you were going to explain like what you're really trying to accomplish with your your collection of work and, you know, what what do you hope that that people take away or what ha- have they taken away from other shows where you've actually interacted with people viewing your work? It, it is narrative work, very much so. And really, if I got to control what everyone was <laughs> to take great? away from it, which of course, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't. Um, honestly, my, my biggest goal would be for people to look at it and be able to recognize the humanity in other people, even those that they've never met, or even those who live very differently than themselves. Because I feel like just societally as a whole, that our, our biggest problem is not being able to recognize the humanity in other people. And by, by introducing the idea of like, these people celebrated their birthdays, their birthdays, whoever lived here also did that, that 
this home isn't just an eyesore to be torn down, that it has its own history. Um, I also want to draw attention to the fact that some histories get preserved and kept, and then other histories do not. And a lot of times those divides are racial, economic. If you look at, say, historic markers on the roadsides, there is some really stark contrast in who does and doesn't get recorded by history. So my assumption is that people whose homes have been abandoned have also been have abandoned historically. And I want to, um, to honor them. Yeah. And I think you certainly accomplished that. I know when I walked away, I was impressed with the techniques used. Um, but I was also unsettled by the content because you, I start to think, well, what happened to these people? Like, where are they now? Um, why, why is the house empty? Like, why is that photograph? Like who, who is that in the photo? Like, you know, so I, right. I of course I'm a journalist, so I'm coming at this with a mil- with a million questions, but, <laughs> but it did provoke and stir something in me as I looked at your work because um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of times people are, are really quick to complain about the abandoned buildings. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I was born in Detroit and I know that's a huge issue where people are right. like, oh, it's an eyesore and there's so many buildings that are abandoned and people are really upset about how they don't want to look at that. They don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I think that you're, you're really make you're, you're, you're capturing these images in such a way that you put so much time and energy into you know, quilting around these images and then, you know, layering paintings on top of them. And you're in a way, it's kind of like, look at this, like, take a look, you know, and um, I'm Mm -hmm. curious about the name you chose to call it past perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that name? Um, Well, I I always I kind of like wordplay in general. So not just as far as like a, a, a verb sense past perfect, but I think I'm kind of idealizing these places and coming up with a perfect version of the the past, even though it's a completely invented version. So I don't I don't know that there I don't genuinely know that there was ever a moment of happiness in any of those houses. Um, but I I choose to believe in some perfect version of their pasts. Yeah, so it, it's it does have kind of a sense of um, optimism. They kind of Mm-hmm. encases the whole the whole collection which is really interesting and um yeah i mean it's a i i thought it was a really really cool exhibit and i i think that it's going to be interesting to see how the voters respond to it that'll be really that'll be <laughs> I, I, have yeah, you ever I'm, been in i'm any? not even thinking about that part of stuff <laughs> well no i mean well that's the thing so and i wanted to get to that too i mean this is probably unlike any other you know, um, venue or any other, you know, you've, have you been in an art competition like this before or anything like this where people are voting and picking winners and. No, no. I mean, I've, I, like I said, I, you know, used to participate in a lot of juried shows until a few years ago. Um, but I have not participated in something like this where it's the, the public vote and just the thousands of people parading through. And I, like, I'm really excited to see what it's all about. I mean, this is, this will probably be the show in which my work is seen by more people than any other show in which I've been involved in the past, which is pretty exciting to think about. I would like to talk very briefly about the the artwork that you had actually intended for Art Prize because it's mm-hmm. very interesting. I think a lot of us um, woke up the day after the election, and um, I know for me personally, I work woke up and it felt like a, a world I didn't quite recognize. Like I was like, "What? Like mm-hmm. what is going on here?" and um, so you got inspired by that, it sounds like. And was it after the election that you started your uh, recent activity? It's called Recent Activity, correct? It's called Recent Activity. It was actually, um, the day I started it was January 27th, which was the day Trump instituted the Muslim travel ban. Oh, yes. Um, I, had, I had been kind of thinking about the the overall conceptual idea for this work for for a, a, a several months, even preceding the election, because um, in the work, I'm responding to other people's social media activity that I haven't done. So um, on that day of the President Trump's travel ban, which which kind of made me start this project for real, was the revelation that I couldn't participate. Um, I live two hours from the closest airport, and I could see all these other 
protests erupting around the country at JFK airport and then spreading elsewhere. And all I could do was scroll through my newsfeed, clicking on hearts and thumbs up and, you know, writing in words of encouragement. And it felt just incredibly inadequate and trying to add the role of activist into my roles of educator, artist, wife, mother was, was, I just realized how impossible that was and that how, how much I was failing in comparison to everybody else I knew. And that there was like this perfect idealized impossible version of myself. If I accumulated all of the things that I liked and commented on and shared and thumbs up and loved on Facebook, um, but that that's not the same as actually doing things. Right. So I, I, I started the, the project recent activity where I'm um, using hand cut lettering to say what I haven't done. So the first one was I didn't protest at JFK airport, but I liked it and it's gone on there. So I, I now I've made about 70 of these panels so far. Um, and 18 of them are up right now at New Mexico state university. And then the rest of them will be going to Oz arts in Nashville. I install in about two weeks. Okay. And so these are, you know, when you say they're hand cut, are you cutting Mm -hmm. them like die cutting or you're cutting with just a scissors? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I'm cutting with scissors, scissors, exacto knife and a rotary cutter. So, so what I do is I, um, I, I use the Facebook font and write the the statements in um, word. And then I turn it into a PDF, import it into Photoshop, reverse it, project it onto the reverse side of fabric that I back with um, heat bond. So, you know, some interfacing heat web. Yeah. Well, not interfacing. It's just a fusible web. Oh, okay. And so so then I, then I trace, right. Then I trace around it and then I cut it out using a combination of rotary cutter, scissors, and exacto knife, and then iron them onto fabric. Oh, geez. How big is the font? Like how big are these letters? Because they look. Each, the letters range from about two and a half to three and a half inches. Okay. So, so each of the panels are like three feet to five feet. And it's just stuff that you're, and it's your own activity. So when you said that. Well, it's other people, it's what I have done in response to other people's activities. Okay. So, so you might be liking um, someone's post or angry facing someone's right. post. And you're just, you're exactly. just basically documenting what you mm-hmm. do, what your social media activity was. And um, that mm-hmm. basically a commentary on how you weren't able to, to go participate in real life. And, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. like, um, I didn't bake homemade organic Valentine's cookies with my children, but I liked it twice. <laughs> right. um, and so it's, you know, it's it, this, this kind of failure to protest triggered my revelation that like, oh, no, I'm also failing like as a mother, as a professional, as an art, as, in all these different ways, if I accumulated everything that everyone I know is doing. Right it would be my ideal me, but it's impossible to be that, that ideal version. Right. And it's interesting too, because there's kind of even a meta takeaway here where you're commenting on what started out as a political inspiration, you know, that kind of got you going mm-hmm. on this, um, the commentary on professional, personal. Um, but then also within this whole structure, we also spend the time we spend liking or angry facing or just thinking oh, oh man on social media is like that's crazy too because that's like that robs us exactly <laughs> so it's a whole and other then, layer right that time i could be doing all these things and i think in the time that i'm spending to document what i'm not doing i could be actually doing these things i talk myself in circles with it. <laughs> well but the thing is though i think that's what makes this this collection this artwork so relevant because every single person can relate to this, whether you like Trump or not, or you you like you're going to make mm-hmm. the cookies or not, or you're going to however you're going to whether you're going to go see Hamilton, whatever you're going to do, um, you know, people can relate to. We are constantly bombarded with the messages and these like seeing what our friends and family members and even these people we haven't talked to in years are doing, right. and and we we have emotional responses to that. You might feel like oh, well, that person got what was coming to them or, oh, I wish my life was like that or, geez, I'm really glad I'm not so-and-so or, you know, I mean, we have all these, you know, sometimes people are feeling competitive, they're feeling sad, they're feeling envy, they're feeling like, you know, they're feeling great because compared to someone else, they're doing great, you know. So it's interesting how emotionally people are responding. But this this piece, though, is um, it just, I, I found it to be really 
fantastic just because it's so relevant to uh, uh, you know anyone who's on social media anyone with a facebook account is going to be able to look at this and be like yeah i've i've done one of those things here where i you know they like something or they angry faced it um Mm -hmm. so yeah how long does it take you when you when you do how often do you do these uh um i have been working at these pretty intensely so it i like i said i started it January 27th. And as with any new project, it was, it was kind of a tentative start of, is this, does this make sense to do? Let me, let me talk to my critique group about it. I'll, you know, keep working on this other quilt and then I'll make some more, but I'm, I've now been working on them pretty intensely for a few weeks. Once I, once it was kind of settled where I was going to be having my show of these and how many I need to get finished for them, um, for the show. So if, if I were to sit down and just make one start to finish, depending on how many letters in it, it would take three to five hours, but I've been making them kind of in groups. So I'll, I'll do the projecting and tracing on like three or four of them at a time, and then I'll cut them out. And I also work with a studio assistant who's helping with the cutting of them as well. Um, so I've been able to turn out like five to seven a week. Yeah. And then you're using all recycled fabric. Mm-hmm. Yep. So where still, do you find your from my, Oh, my, all from that st- same still, stash. Yep, still from the quilting group. Yeah. And th- have yeah, and what is the qu- they're great. <laughs> what does the quilting group think of your work? Do they come to your shows? And they, do they come and see what you've done, or do you go back to them and show them what you're making? Um, I have I have gone and visited them and shown them my work, and they've been super supportive and really um, they like it a lot and have have said how it's like even though they're making really traditional stuff, they they respond to it. I, they, as far as I know, haven't seen this newest project. I don't, I don't know how they would respond to it. Um, I periodically will send them like, you know, a, a thank you card with postcards for my latest shows or, or whatever I'm doing to kind of keep them up with where their fabric is ending up. And then I also take some of the fabric they give me and take it over to campus for my students to use. And you know, it, it ends up having other purposes as well. Yeah, well, and I'm interested in how you divide your life because obviously you have a lot going on. You're a mom, you're a working mom, you know, you're teaching, so you have students, and um, and then you're working intensely on your own projects and showing in huge shows like Art Prize. So, how do you divide your time? I mean, how often are you teaching? I mean, are you teaching full a full load of the semester? Or? I, mm-hmm, I do. I teach a full load every semester. So um, this semester, I'm teaching Tuesday, Thursday, Friday are my teaching days. And I try very hard to keep my other teaching work condensed to those days as well. So all of my um, course prep and grading and meeting with students and committee meetings and things like that, I I try to keep condensed on those days and then try to keep Mondays and Wednesdays as my studio days. I I have an amazing husband who he works full time as well, but he absolutely shares in all of the childcare responsibilities we have a part-time nanny who picks up the kids a couple of days a week and then they do after school stuff and it's, it's juggling, but it, it works. I mean, I, I get up early and go down to the studio sometimes before anybody else is up or I stay up late and work down there or I'll be stitching while we, if I'm watching TV with my husband in the evening. Um, I, different things take different priorities at different times. And like right now I need to be really invested in my studio work. So you know, per, perhaps I'm dropping some other balls at work. I haven't noticed yet, but I could be. <laughs> and it, you so know, things work out. Is your studio right in your home? It is. It's in, we um, finished the basement in our home and that is where my studio is. Okay. And so you're doing, um, so I'm assuming you have sewing machines in there, or at least one sewing machine. And mm-hmm. um, what mm-hmm. other types of equipment do you have that you work with um, that you tend to use most often? Um, well, I have you know, my sewing machine, of course, and then I have my, my Epson printer, which is what I do the printing for my quilts on, and a, a widescreen com- computer monitor, which helps a lot when I'm doing um, the Photoshop work for the quilts. Mm-hmm. Um, ton, tons of fabric. And other than that, it's like wall space and, and table space. You know, I don't really have a lot of specialized equipment. I do have a small digital projector, but it's it's mostly just space is what I need. And there's never enough of it, even though I have, I don't know, it's it's probably like 25 by maybe 15 feet. Um, so it's a pretty decent sized space, but I always want more. 
Yeah, and I always fill the space I have. Like I just I'm like, oh, I can oh, yeah. I could stash more supplies, and then it's like hard to walk. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, so it sounds like well, that's convenient though that you can work in your house. So uh, of course, yeah, sometimes it, that it means is. you never like leave your work, um, and also your whole family can find you if, <laughs> which could be good or bad <laughs> so depending on what your deadlines are. Right. <laughs> but the commute, the commute is kind of nice. So what classes are you teaching right now? So I'm not teaching weaving specifically this semester. I, I do usually teach a couple fiber classes a semester and then other general studio art classes. So this semester I am teaching Foundations One, which is a two-dimensional design class for like you know incoming freshmen, um, which is really fun. I hadn't taught this class in six years, so it's it's exciting. They're like, they're so eager and not jaded and full of energy. And <laughs> it's, it's really great. So it I'm, is I'm great. Having, having lots of fun teaching them. Um, and then I'm teaching a, an introductory fibers class that includes just a little bit of weaving, a little bit of surface design and embroidery and embellishment. And that's specifically for apparel design and merchandising students. So they're not within the art department, but they, they take this one fibers experience. Um, and sometimes some of them will also then maybe minor in art or go on to take some more fibrous classes. And they have they have just started weaving and are, are doing great with that. And then the other course I'm teaching is our, um, our senior seminar class. So our studio art majors take a two-course capstone series. So in the seminar course, they do a lot of reading and research and writing about their work. And it, it culminates in a proposal for what they will do during senior studio. And so it's the same cohort of students that take those two courses in sequence and then the same instructor from the studio art art area teaches it. So I'm doing that right now. And it's students from all disciplines. So it's metals and printmaking and fibers and clay and photography and painting um, all mixed together. And that I I love teaching that class because they're getting ready to go out into the professional world and really finding their voices in art. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm teaching right that's now. That's awesome. And do you, are you covering like how to market your work? And that, is that a class that t- tells students like how they can sell their work and after college or? Um, we do have a, a professional practice class that is offered usually once a year. Um, I, I focus less on like how to sell your work as and more on kind of how do you holistically build an art life as I part see. of that okay. seminar class, because there's so many different routes of supporting oneself with art making. And for a lot of artists, it's not a, I'm going to sell a bunch of art and then live off of that income. I'm going to have a combination of grants and fellowships and teaching workshops and part-time at a gallery and doing all these different things together. So I mean, what I tell my students is all they have to do to find their own particular paths in the art world is one, they have to keep making art and, and keep making better art. Um, and two, they have to get their art and themselves out there. And by showing their work, by going to exhibitions, by, by being involved, by physically leaving their studio and going out. And as long as they do those two things, they're going to be fine and they will find their path in the art world um, in whatever form it takes. And I will say our students tend to do well at those things. I and mean, we, we do have students who go on and do very well in the art world and do very well fairly soon after graduating, which is pretty great to see. That is awesome. Yeah, it's the best thing when you're mm-hmm. teachers to see your students oh, yeah. achieve what they set out to do. That's very gratifying. It's fantastic. Yeah. I don't know if you have any advice for... So for other folks who might be listening, and there are people who are makers who listen to the show from all over the place, not all of them will be able to get to Art Prize. But um, mm-hmm. do you have any maybe words of encouragement for people who maybe didn't, maybe they had the same kind of childhood that you did, where they were making things constantly and doing various um, art projects, but went that, you know, maybe they turned the direction I turned, where I was like, oh, I'm going to go with the you know, picked a different career that was not art. And that bug, one of the things I do tell my students is I said, you know, what you want to do when you're a kid, like the things that can, you know, really captivate you, there's a good chance that 40 years later, you're still going to feel that way about whatever it is, you know, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. if you like art, or you like, um, 
you know, whatever you like is it's probably going to, it's going to have a hold on you your entire life. And I know art is very strong that way. Um, whether people like music or actually making art, painting or fibers or whatever it is. But what what advice do you have for people, especially those who uh, might be into the more into the fiber arts that sometimes uh, folks um, have a hard time breaking into their local gallery if they're, they're working in fibers and um, any, any, you know, thoughts you might share for folks who might be wanting to show their work, but feeling reluctant because they're not painting um, or doing sculptures? Um, oh, gosh. Well, I, I think there are more and more opportunities for fiber specifically. So, the, I mean, the first step might be to get involved in either local or national fibers organizations. So joining Surface Design Association, Textile Society of America, or American Craft Council to get a better sense of exactly what's going on already out there and what kind of shows there are. And there are a lot of exhibition opportunities through those things like surface design association in conjunction with their conferences has an open members show. So anyone who is a member can exhibit their work and sometimes just exhibiting something for the first time can be a big hurdle for people and, you know, meeting that deadline, um, meeting the specific requirements of the show. So, so that would be my first recommendation is like actually, become involved in whatever, um, whatever it is you intend to, to, to go for, like in what direction. Um, and then local guilds can be really great too. I don't know what the scene is like in Grand Rapids, but I imagine there's probably some kind of fibers or textiles guild that can be helpful. Um, it, yeah, I'm actually the I vice president also, of the Weavers Guild in town, oh, and we're always looking for oh, new members. Okay. Yes, yeah. So there you go. There is already a guild, um, and I, I think you know anyone who wants to to do this professionally has to treat it like a profession. So you know, art making isn't something to just do when you're in the mood, mm-hmm. when you feel like it, when you're inspired. It's something to work at every day, and it's not always going to be fun. And there are parts of the process that are not going to be fun. Um, so I, you know, the, my biggest piece of advice, the same as I would give students is to, to keep making work and keep challenging yourself to make better work. And sometimes having a critique group is a really helpful way to help push that work forward. Um, and then get your work out there by submitting your work to juried shows and then kind of slowly introducing yourself to curators and, and gallerists and seeing, where your work might fit and, and actually going and participating in the art world. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, the key is just do the work because a lot of people, um, yeah. if you're sitting there and you're not making anything and you're wondering why no one's inviting you to be part of a show, right. that might be the reason. Right. And actually you'd be in a world of trouble if someone actually invited you to be part of a show because you wouldn't have anything to show. <laughs> so, right. it's, so yeah, you can really help matters just by being active. Well, one of the things I like to circle back to art prize, anytime I interview artists who are in art prize, I always ask them what they would do if they won the whole thing. So there's a, a large, a large <laughs> sum to be collected here, um, and so what? What do you what do you think you would do if you won art prize? Um, so I, I will say truthfully, I'm not going to win art prize like that. <laughs> that's not in the realm of possibility. That's totally fine, and that's not that's not my intention as being part of it. Um, I would I would probably donate a chunk of it. So some of my favorite places to donate to are like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the NAACP, Planned Parenthood, Border Angels, Ronald McDonald House, Craft Emergency Relief Fund, Hospitality Homes, um, Penland School of of Crafts, Aramont School of Arts and Crafts, um, American Craft Council, Textile Society of America, Surface Design Association. So uh, all of my favorites that usually get little tiny donations every year would get bigger, bigger donations. Um, well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And then there would, you know, probably save some for the kids' college, uh, maybe do some landscaping work around the house, save a little bit for retirement. I I don't know. I don't I don't think there would be any one big giant thing, like maybe maybe get a really good pedicure. <laughs> I, <laughs> probably treat myself to something. Um but I think I I, I tend to be pretty like in my own life fiscally conservative. So there would yeah. be just a lot of savings and, and reinvesting my art. Honestly, anytime my studio brings money in, like I consider my, my income from my, my 
professorship to be what I count on. So when my studio brings in additional money, I just reinvest it in my studio practice by either hiring additional assistants or traveling more or buying new equipment. Is there a, what equipment, if, um, if you had uh, a windfall of cash, what would you like to get? Like to, would help your work into that next, uh, whatever you want to do next. Is there anything you have your eye on? Um, a, a wide format printer. Cause I, I would like to try experimenting with getting a little bit messier with my piecing and quilting. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm physically capable of doing that, but I want to see what would happen if I layered even more stuff on it. And with the printer I have now, it's really limited as far as how thick of stuff I can send through it. Is there anything else that you would like to say that I didn't ask you about that you feel is you know, important to you for that people know? Did I miss anything? Oh, gosh. I know it's hard to summarize I, your life. You've been very thorough. And, <laughs> yeah, but, you've been very, I'm just, I, I'm excited to be participating in the Art Prize. I'm, I'm really honored and appreciative of the Grand Rapids Art Museum for inviting me to show up there. And I can't wait to see all of the work. I know I'm not going to manage to see every single entry in the 48 hours that I'll be in Grand Rapids, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try very hard to see as much as I possibly can. And it's awesome that Grand Rapids does this. Yeah, it's really, it really is fun. And I feel very fortunate to live about 20 minutes away. So it's, it is a fun time to, to appreciate mm-hmm. the city and all it has to offer. Well, I, I, I wish you safe travels. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to chat. A special thanks to Gina for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope you folks had a good time listening to that too. I hope if there's anybody out there that's thinking, oh man, I really want to get my work out there. I hope you do. I hope you really do. I just keep doing your thing and who knows, maybe I'll be interviewing you next, uh, next year for Art Prize. We'll see. And I just read an article that really kind of irritated me online It was written by somebody who's not a professional journalist, didn't train as a professional journalist, and then is really dogging people uh, who enter Art Prize. And I just want to say, if there's anybody who entered Art Prize this year, and maybe you're not a professional artist, and then you read this piece and someone's saying, like, you have no place to be there. You know, I just want to say that that's complete and total nonsense. Every year in the top 10 list, there's usually one or two pieces where I'm just like, what? Like, no, like, that does not, that's not really what I like. But that's that's the beauty of our prize is that anything kind of goes and, and it's just something, it, it starts conversations. And, and But I just think we, we kind of forget what it's all about when we start saying that certain people don't have the right to be in the show and uh, or in the competition. And, and it's just like, you know, that's just not helpful. <laughs> so you do art prize your way. And, um, and what I want to encourage everyone to think about is that even behind the most ghastly art prize entry, there's a story, folks. And I don't know about you, but I've been on this planet for 41 years. I find people to be incredibly interesting. My art prize dream for myself is to weave a structure and maybe do some printmaking on a structure and then station myself inside that structure for the duration of Art Prize, and I would like to interview and document the stories that people tell me, and I would like to talk to people about their art and just do kind of a marathon run of that and kind of help show people that sometimes it's not really even about the art. It's about the story behind the art. I mean, I'm not an art critic. I'm a person who trained as a journalist who likes to make art myself, but I've interviewed plenty of people who've made art that I don't like. And of course, I'm not talking about Gina. I really like Gina's art. What I said in the beginning of the show was not a pack of lies. (laughs) I'm just tacking this on because I just read this post yesterday. And I was just like, man, like, that's just kind of rude and pretentious and terrible. And I I just want to, again, just kind of remind us all that this is a visual feast, but if we talk to the people who made this work, there's often something very, very interesting there because people are interesting. We're really interesting. Um, and if you don't think someone's interesting, you probably haven't asked the right questions because if you can get a person to open up and tell you about their life, I, I can't think of someone that I, I've interviewed and I haven't found something about them fascinating. And, you know, I, I'm so glad I was born with that kind of reaction and response to people. And who knows, maybe I will 
take this project forward and find a way to get some funding to kind of prove to people that it, there's a story behind everything and it makes things beautiful. That's my that's my take on this. If you're in town, go to Art Prize. If you live close enough to come to Grand Rapids, Michigan, come on down to Art Prize. It is cool. It's fun. It's free. And um, I'm not I'm not being paid or sponsored by Art Prize. Completely independent here, um, but I do like it. I really do like it. And um, yeah, I feel lucky that I live in West Michigan, even though I miss my family so much. Um, I'm from Detroit, so. For all these years, it's still hard to be here without my family, but um, but yeah, but Art Prize sure is fun. And hopefully my family will come to Art Prize this year and check it out, as they have many times in the past. So I'm going to go find another artist to profile, and in the meantime, you folks craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Same time next week we'll be crafting on in the meantime CraftSanity.com or CraftSanity on Instagram. Lots of posts and inspiration. CraftSanity, CraftSanity. Oh, here's a little addendum. I have so much to say today. I posted a little series of photos on my Instagram feed. I attempted to take a weaving loom to Tiger Stadium yesterday for Matthew Boyd's almost no-hitter. And uh, I was not at the game because I'm a super fan. Uh, I used to be a super fan. Uh, When I was a a child growing up, I would wear a Detroit Tigers baseball hat that I bought at McDonald's. Or my parents probably bought for me at McDonald's. It was like a $5 hat, like with purchase or something. And I wore that thing out. And I was hoping to be the first Detroit Tiger, a female Detroit Tiger. I was going to be the first woman on the team. And um, and then I kind of, you know, realized uh, probably it took me a little too long to realize that that probably was not really possible for me, nor was it really how I wanted to spend my life. But anyway, that aside... My niece, uh, her birthday is today, and she we were celebrating her birthday a day early, and she's turning eight, and exactly the age I was when I was obsessed with baseball, and you know the Tigers won the World Series when I was in second grade, so it was just a very exciting time to be a kid who loves baseball and collects baseball cards, and it was great. So we went to Tiger Stadium to celebrate with her. And um, I, because I'm just kind of weird, I always have to have a project. And I thought, well, I could bring a reasonable small knitting project or a tiny weaving project. But no, I was like, you know, I kind of want to make mini cowls. So I brought the hat loom. And it's like, I don't know what the dimensions are, but it's like wider than my lap and probably put it's pushing it to get into a stadium with. And I, and I knew that I thought, you know, let's just see what happens. Let's just see what happened. So I walked up and I have a video of what happened, which I didn't take. Somebody else took it, which was kind of funny because I didn't know that was going to happen. And um, initially it didn't go well, my attempt to get into Tiger Stadium. But if you're interested in hearing all about that, you can find that at Craft Sanity on Instagram. And uh, just want to put that out there. Um, My husband became the hero of the story And I think now I'm finally ready to get on with the rest of my day and stop talking. So (laughs) thanks for listening. If you tuned in for this little impromptu secret unplanned after show, have a good day and I'll be back soon.